Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of James. We're going to continue our study in James. We're in James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. What a, a powerful, powerful book this has been in the life of our church. Let me read James 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Our Father, we know that sins of the the tongue are so often on our lips. This is something that we all struggle with. This is a passage that touches all of us. And so we come to you again in our need. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And we pray that you would speak through it by the power of your spirit. Amen. Emma Watson will return to Harry Potter if J.K. Rowling isn't involved. It's a tabloid article that caught my eye this week. I'm not usually one for these kinds of articles, but this one did grab my attention in passing. Rowling wrote the book series and Watson played one of the main characters. I was surprised to learn that fans of the Harry Potter series have eagerly discussed the possibility of an eighth Harry Potter movie. If you care about these things, Emma Watson's refusal to be a part of the the next movie might derail your enthusiasm just a little bit. I was interested in the article because of the political debates that have been raging over the last few years. So J.K. Rowling has been under a lot of fire for being critical of the push towards genderless bathrooms in the UK. And Emma Watson has been unspoken in her criticism, or outspoken in her criticism of Rowling, taking to Twitter and other platforms. Now, I'm not sure if Emma Watson actually said she wouldn't be a part of another movie, or if that's just tabloid gossip, but it did cause another vehement Twitter storm over the last month. We live in a very interesting cultural moment. For so long, we've lived in a society that is seemingly tolerant, a postmodern world where tolerance is maybe the highest virtue. You aren't allowed to speak against the way that somebody chooses to, to live their life. One of the greatest sins in our culture is to infringe upon someone's self-perceived right to autonomy and to freedom. You're not even allowed to challenge that person's perception of their reality. What is true for someone is not up to debate. Their experience is their own, and you better not challenge that experience. If you do, you will be seen as a bigot in our culture. 
The truth is our world is extremely intolerant of intolerance. If there's any part of scripture that the world likes to quote and cling to, it's Jesus' command in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. Or James's question here in this passage, who are you to judge? But it's an interesting cultural moment because we actually live in an extremely judgmental, polarized society. Culture wars have been fought tooth and nail by people who hold differing opinions. And with the help of the internet, you don't even have to know or see the person that you're fighting against. With bravery through anonymity, people attack one another without inhibition. And you can't read the public comments section on any social media platform without seeing the the vitriol and the venom people have for those who think differently to the way that they do. The last few years have seemed to escalate or at least publicize how judgmental we really are. Debates have raged, haven't they? Over vaccines, public bathrooms, presidents, riots, abortion laws. And the world is not happy to dialogue about these things, but sees the need to take it a step further. We write one another off, cancel each other is the cultural term. There's a fatigue in our world. I think we have felt recently the truth of James that we saw a few weeks ago in James 3 verse 8. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And how are we in the church to obey our biblical mandate to love one another considering the pervasiveness of the spirit of the age? In the church, we fall prey to different traps that reveal that we are at times more influenced by our culture than by God's word. Over the last few years, the church hasn't risen above the critical, harsh, judgmental spirit of the age in many ways. Culture wars have dominated even in the church and sidetracked the church. And that same culture of cancellation has been evident in the church. And yet, on the other hand, the the postmodern motto, don't tell me how to live my life, that mantra has rubbed off even on the church. Churches often have little or no standard to which members are expected to conform. We say we need to welcome all, and that is a good thing, but in result, we never challenge one another, challenge the lifestyle choices of people, and they are church people by and large, coasting through life with no direction, no prophetic witness to the truth. We need to stop taking our cue from the world, but rather from the word of God. And James is here to help us. He's been speaking about humility, in particular in the need for relational healing in the church. In chapter three, he opened this discussion on the tongue and how our hearts affect our speech He contrasted in chapter 3 the wisdom of the world that flows from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He contrasted that with the wisdom that is from above, that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. In chapter 4, he spoke about the reason that we have quarrels and fights in the church. He said, it's your passions that war within you. And he spelled out the way forward for us, if you remember last time out. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
Now, James begins a section, a practical section, where he shows us what that humility might look like in different avenues of our lives, starting with this passage and a word again on how we speak to and maybe more primarily how we speak about one another. As we unpack this passage, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look first at the problem that James is addressing, a problem in our lives and the life of the church. And then we're going to look at his solution under three questions, three questions that we should ask ourselves before we ever open our mouths to speak. So number one, let's look at the problem with our speech, the problem with our speech. James begins with this command. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. As I said, this verse touches all of us. Slander, gossip, critical speech is the very air that the world breathes. It's taken for granted. It's not questioned anymore. It's not even frowned upon. Every sitcom that we watch, it's there. It's the accepted norm in in our workplace conversations. And we are not immune to the problem in the church. It's a sin. It's a sin that we so often overlook or justify, excuse ourselves in. And so this leaves none of us out. Maybe more than any section in James's letter, this reaches all of us. And so we need to approach this passage with a particular heart, the humility that James spoke of. We need to approach it saying, what does God have to say to me in this passage? Not what does God have to say to my neighbor? Not, well, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear this message. What is God saying to me? What is James renouncing in this passage? The NIV puts it a different way. The NIV says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not slander one another. And that is one of the primary ways, I believe, that we speak against one another. Scripture has much to say about slander, doesn't it? Much to say about this problem. There are narrative sections, for example, that speak about the terrible consequences that can come from slander. In 1 Kings 21, for example, King Ahab covets the vineyard of a man named Naboth. And Naboth refuses to sell his vineyard to the king. And so, you know, King Ahab, he's petulant. And so he goes and he complains to his wife, Jezebel. He won't, won't give me the vineyard. And, and Jezebel's a, a go-getter. So it says she finds two worthless men who come and trump up false charges about Naboth that, that result in his being executed. Now, of all the wicked things that we see Ahab and Jezebel do in this, in this book, of all the wicked things, it was after this that God finally judged them, that he said, your house is going to be destroyed. The prophecy was given of Jezebel that she herself would be eaten by dogs in the street. It shows the heart of God towards slander and its damaging consequences. We see in the time of the exile, the enemies of the Jews halted the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and they did it how? By slandering the Jews to their Persian overlords. Haman almost had the Jews exterminated because of it. And throughout history, there are examples of wars and genocides committed on the backs of of evil untruths. Having felt the sting of slander, David decries it in various psalms, calling against slander, the slander of the wicked. 
David, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, our Lord himself, suffered all of them because of slander. In Proverbs, much is said about it as well. Proverbs says that slander destroys friendships. It inflicts deep wounds. It destroys lives. It stirs up contention. It spreads strife, and it reveals the speaker to be a fool. Listen to what Proverbs 18 verse 8 says about gossip how both speaker and listener are complicit in the sin. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisper, whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. So juicy to hear and to savor. Never confuse a good listener with someone who just loves to feed off gossip and complaints. Throughout the New Testament, slander is condemned as well. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, in a list of the wicked, Paul says, who will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul even includes slanderers in that list. Now, Scripture is clear about how God feels about slander and gossip. But the word that James uses here is not just slander, it's broader than that, I believe. It means literally just to speak against or even to speak down upon. It forbids any speech where somebody stands above somebody else and runs another person down. It can include different kinds of speech that flow from a critical spirit. If you have a critical spirit and you speak uh, from that spirit, that's what would be included in this word. It's captured as well in the second term that James uses. Again and again and again, we see the word in this passage. He uses the word six times, the word judge. And he ends with the question, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I believe as we understand what James is speaking about, it's important also to understand what James is not saying here. Is the way that our world throws around Jesus' statement, judge not lest you be judged, or throws around James's question, who are you to judge your neighbor? Is the world right in the way that they use it? Are we never to criticize, never to bring accusation, never to make judgments about the actions of others? That cannot be what James is saying here. It would make James himself a hypocrite, wouldn't it? This has been a, a hard-hitting letter. Throughout the letter, James has been judging the church. The last thing he's going to say in this letter is he's going to speak about the blessing of restoring the one who has wandered off into sin. And that restoration process necessarily involves judging someone's belief and practice. The Bible is full of calls to repentance, the need to show discernment, to judge false teaching, and to confront sin. Jesus gave us a process for confronting sin, starting with going to your brother one-on-one, face-to-face, but going as far as, if necessary, if that brother is still unrepentant, even taking that sin to the church. Paul speaks of an actual example of this in the letter, to the first letter to the Corinthians. In that letter, Paul is angry with the church, furious that they are tolerating sexual sin in the camp. Paul says of a kind we don't even see among the pagans, and you are proud of it. Listen to Paul's command here to the Corinthians and tell me that we are never supposed to judge. He says, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, 
In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is not a popular verse in our world, is it? It's not a popular verse. We are called to make judgments. We're called to shepherd one another, called to be clear about what's right and wrong. And a church that never pushes back on the sin of its members, never judges sin, is a church in sin itself. We want to be the restorative community that we were called, that we're meant to be. We want to be a church that esteems highly the purity of Christ. So we guard our purity for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his name in the world, that we would not be a church that drags the name of Christ through the mud. We don't want to be a people always sitting back saying, well, it's not my place to judge. I'm just, I'm not going to say or do anything. But there is a difference between making loving judgments and being judgmental. And the difference is what's in your heart, isn't it? It's what's in the heart. We need to gauge our hearts before we speak to or about one another. For example, we'll often justify gossip or slander, often justify it by saying, well, it's the truth. What I'm saying is the truth. But you can speak the truth and still sin. Something can be true to say, or true, but still wrong to say. Gossip doesn't have to be untrue to be gossip. Something can be true, but it can be aimed at lowering someone else, aimed at defeating them, at ruining their reputation. And so when we speak, we first have to ask the question, what is in my heart? What is my motivation? Why am I saying what I'm about to say? What's going on on in my heart when I talk to myself about that person or to someone else about that person or even to that person face to face? We are to be very slow to speak, James has said. What are some of the sinful heart problems behind a slanderous or critical or a judgmental spirit? There's pride, right? We tend so often to forget who we are. We believe that we are wiser than we are, more righteous than we are. We think we must be right. I must be right and you must be wrong. I have to win at all costs. I have to have my way. I'm threatened by you. That's insecurity. I'm threatened by the way that you think and your preferences. Uh, Or I desire to be elevated and the only way I can figure out how to do that is by putting you down. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, we enjoy the dubious elevation of walking on the bruised heads of others. We're that Pharisee that Jesus spoke of so often. Oh, God, thank you that I'm not like other sinners. I'm not like this tax collector. Evil speech flows from the fact that we have double standards. We don't hold ourselves to the same standards that we hold others to, and so we are harsh with them. We can't see the log in our eyes while we reach all around for the speck in others. Judgmentalism is often driven by bitterness or a desire for revenge. We believe that we've been wronged, so we go to war. We amass our army around us. We say that our cause is righteous, but is it really? Deep down, do we not maybe want to elevate self 
or even the score, the judging, and the speaking against that James is speaking of here. It's the opposite of the love that the church is called to. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 13 verse 7, Paul says this, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A critical spirit is always quick to believe the worst about someone, to exaggerate the facts, to put somebody else in a, a worse light than they really should be put. Love, on the other hand, intentionally makes a practice of believing the best, choosing I'm going to believe the best about this person. Imagine what kind of a community we could be the more and more we grow into this. Imagine if we all decided to speak as generously as we possibly could about one another. We want to be a place of refreshing, life-giving, building up speech, don't we? We need to speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Truth is important. We want scripture to come to bear on our lives. We want to bear one another's burdens and shepherd one another. We want to lead one another in holiness, the holiness of Christ. But we cannot and must not forget love. What we don't want is a culture of judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. That is a draining culture to live in. It stifles our growth. It distracts us from our mission. Church, we've got to learn more from this letter. So what is the solution? James, we're going to go through his teaching now. Three questions. We're going to look at them under three questions to ask before we speak. The first question is this. Who is the only rightful judge? Before I open my mouth, I need to ask this question of myself. Ask this question. Who is the only rightful judge? Look at verse 11 and 12 again. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James is making an interesting argument in this passage. He suggests that when you have critical speech or slander, when you slander a brother or a sister, what that involves is standing in judgment over that person, over that believer. In essence, I, I climb a pedestal that puts me above that person. But James makes this not just a horizontal problem. This is not just about us together. He makes this a vertical problem. He says, when you have a critical spirit, when you slander, you have a problem not just with your brother, you have a problem with God because you're rebelling. You're rebelling against your rightful place. You've made yourself a judge, and he says, there is only one lawgiver, there is only one judge. John MacArthur puts it this way The sin of slander, James warns, is no trivial matter. It is brazen, reckless treason against the sovereign lawgiver and judge of the universe. And so James poses this question, who are you to judge your neighbor? Hear it a different way. He's saying, who do you think that you are? Who do you think you are? This is the serious state of the critical judgmental heart. 
It's a heart that's not happy with God to rule and reign. It's not happy with God to be on the throne. A heart that's not able to rest in his timing, in his judgment. When we're critical in spirit, we have an inflated sense of our own wisdom, our own impartiality. Let's go back to that example. You say, well, what I'm saying is the truth. I'm only speaking the truth. The reality is whenever you talk about somebody else, whenever you talk about somebody else, you might think you speak the truth, but in truth you don't. Not really. Not the full truth. Not the full story. Not the full picture. When we start speaking about motives and the intentions of another, we are treading blindly because we cannot see into their hearts, can we? We don't know their hearts. We're not God. James says, I've got one, I've got news for you. There is one judge, and you are not him. And James says, when we slander, we speak with a judgmental spirit, we're usurping God's authority. We're placing ourselves outside and above his law. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What is James saying here? There's a few times that he's spoken about the law in this letter, right? And he's spoken like this before. In chapter 2, he was talking about the sin of favoritism. And he said there, similarly, it's not just a horizontal problem. It is a vertical problem. One, if you show favoritism, you're disregarding, he said, the, the royal law, the law of love. And then he quotes Leviticus 19:18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of love. Well, scholars believe that James has come back to that passage. He's got Leviticus 19 again in his mind because if you look in Leviticus 19, two verses prior to verse 18, God says in verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So slandering a brother Being judgmental towards a neighbor means in effect that you are saying this, the royal law of love for some reason does not apply to me. I'm exempt. The late great biblical counselor Jay Adams says it this way, when one speaks negatively about a brother, he transgresses the law and in effect judges the law by his disobedience to it. He virtually says, the law is wrong. I do not want to obey it. I have a better way. We're saying my way is better than God's way of love. My path to justice is better than his path. In my infinite wisdom, I judge the heart of my neighbor. I write him off. Or worse than that, I align support for my cause and I go on the attack. And and James is just saying simply, the message is quite simple in this passage. He's saying, stop. Stop disregarding the law. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Obey. Stop justifying critical speech. Stop justifying your destructive speech, your critical heart. It's not okay if there's truth to it. It's not okay if it's only to your wife in private. It's not okay if they slandered you first. Trust God. Speak the truth in love. The second question we need to ask before we speak is this. Who am I speaking about? Who am I speaking about? We need to take notice of the language that James addresses, or the language of address that he employs here. 
In verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. If you remember just a few verses prior in chapter 4, what did he call them? You adulterous people. He's not addressing them in that way anymore. He's reverted back to this common address we see throughout the letter. He reminds them then, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, again and again he repeats the word. It's not stylistic, it's emphatic. To deal with the sin problems we have with our speech, we need God's help not just to see ourselves rightly and our place rightly before God. We need help to see one another rightly. The way that God sees your brother, the way that God sees your sister, that person whom you slander and criticize, she's a sister. You're both a part of the family. Are you his favorite? Are you alone, the apple of his eye? Now, James, in this passage, is not excusing judgmental speech towards those who are outside of the body of faith. His final question is, who are you to judge your neighbor? So we are to speak with love to all and about all. Christ told us how our attitudes, the attitude of our heart ought to be towards strangers. He gave us a parable, didn't he? The parable of the good Samaritan who went out of his way to lift up his neighbor. This is how we are to treat people and especially including our speech. We lift one another up. But James's primary word in, this, in these verses is to the relationships in the body of Christ. And we need to know that my brother or sister, he will stand or fall before God himself. We all stand or fall separately before the judge. In the book of Romans, Paul asks a very similar question to the one that James asks in this passage. Romans 14.4, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? The context there is that they were judging one another on issues of diet and what they were eating. Paul goes on and he gives a sober reminder about how God sees our fellow believers, brothers and sisters. In verse 3, he says, God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment of the, on, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will, listen to this, he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. That's Paul speaking about the, the fact that we are justified and it is God who makes us stand. Then he says in verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And he says, so then each of us will give account of himself to God. So just be careful. Just remember who it is you're speaking about. Remember the warning of Christ in Matthew 12, 36. You'll stand there as well. You'll stand before the Father. And Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. How does God speak about your brother? How does he speak about your sister? It's the same way he speaks about you. The same way he speaks about me, isn't it? And so question number three, and we'll close with this. How has the judge spoken about me? Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save 
and to destroy. He is the only one who sees every heart. He's the only one who sees inside your heart and knows that he's the one who, because he knows your heart, would have been absolutely righteous were he to judge you and I by cutting us off forever from his eternal loving presence. But how has he treated us? Has he crushed us under the weight of his judgment? It was the son who was crushed for our iniquities. The father sent his son to the earth, not to condemn, not to destroy by the word of his power, but to suffer in our place, the substitute for sinners, the ransom for our sin. And Christ rose again. He vanquished our enemies. He silenced our accuser, the one who would stand before the father and accuse us to him. Any who turn from sin and cry out in faith, calling on the name of the Lord for mercy, they will receive it. This is the way that the judge treats us by taking our sentence upon himself so that he could call us his own. And all, all of God's speech toward us is brimming with love and protection. The Spirit prays. The Spirit prays for the one that you slander. The Son intercedes. He advocates, he says before the accuser in the court of God, that person is mine, my reward. Hebrews 2.11, he is not ashamed to be called our brother. He stood silent before his accusers like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent before God's bar of judgment that we would have something to say. The father, Zephaniah says, rejoices over us with gladness, exalts over us with loud singing. If this is the way that our God speaks to us and about us and over us, how should we speak about one another? Not with a critical heart, surely. We know our place. We know how we've been loved. We speak or are to speak with redeemed hearts that are overflowing with that love, church. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. And Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that even though This is something we struggle with so often. Even still, you forgive. Even still, Jesus, you are interceding. Even still, Jesus, you've promised that you will build your church, that the gates of hell will not prevail. And so may our tongues not work against what you are doing in your church. May our tongues not oppose community that you want us to be. May our tongues not belittle our witness in the world. Help us to love one another. Make us brave about the truth. Make us more and more the the restorative community that you're calling us to be. But help us to be gracious and patient and kind, believing all things, enduring all things, hoping all things. Lord, we need your help with this. We thank you. Father, we thank you for one another. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. 
this little taste of, of heaven, to sing praise to, one, to, to you in the presence of one another. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to become better as we practice this. Practice more and more that day where we will see you face to face. Oh, Jesus. Pray in your holy name. Amen.